It's a really good question because I think as in all of these um, kind of, let's say, discoveries that, that we make as far as um, can we have a full-bodied yes or uh, can we live our heart's desire, you know, sometimes things get a bit black and white. Very often they get a bit black and white. And also um, a lot of people, not by, by malice, but simply by the way they're built, um, when they teach that kind of stuff, they teach it in the simplest way possible because that's how they perceive it. And there's, of course, always other layers. There's no one um, set of circumstances that applies to all people for all times as the fix for everything. Right? That, there is just not such thing because we're very complex and life is very complex. So the, when you say... Um, Sometimes my, my mind, my heart, my body are not aligned, but I still have to make decisions. What you're really saying is different sets of circumstances require different tools. That's when you say, see it as that, then, then it becomes way less dogmatic and it becomes way less like there's a massive conflict. Because if you and I were tradespeople building this deck out there, we would have a tool belt, and in that tool belt, we would have, you know, an electric-powered screwdriver and a hammer and, you know, a measuring tape, and maybe we have some nails and we have some screws. And then certain things need to be nailed down and certain things need to be screwed down. Now, that's a fairly clear decision once you know what you're doing. And if you want something to hold in a certain way, you know, when it kind of, let's say, moves a bit, you choose a screw because the screw will hold it together better. But for other things, a nail is much more easy, you know, it's easier to do or whatever. When you make those decisions, you're not actually questioning, you're not going, should I have done a screw instead of a hammer, uh, uh, instead of a nail? And... What, should I use the screwdriver to put the nail in? You wouldn't do that. It's fairly clear. You have a tool, you have a task, um, you have the thing that puts it together, then you move on. Then you might come back a few years later and notice that where you put the nails in, you really should have done screws. And then you learn that and you do that next, right? So th it's, it's very clear cut when it comes to actual tools of the trade, so to speak in the human body, mind, soul, spirit, you know, and all of that, it doesn't always um, look that clean, of course. So it's not like this decision you do with the hammer, this decision you do with the screwdriver. It's a, it's a bit more complicated, but it follows the same principles, which means um, that there is, let's say, very big picture considerations. There's kind of medium range considerations. There's daily life considerations. There's in the moment considerations. And then there's layers, like it's like a strata, you know, of like different, of different considerations. One of which is survival, which is always the base layer. Right? Is, will you live? And then above that is, will you be part of a tribe, let's say? And then will you have personal relationship? And then will you be accepted by society? And then what's your spiritual aspects? And, you know, and all the way to dissolving and being one with God or some, something like that. And good morning. 
And so the same, the same consideration looked at through the different lenses requires different tools. So that's one way of saying that. So then we could say, sometimes the body says yes, right? We were talking about that. Where are you? There. You say, your body says yes, but then your heart gets hurt. Or your mind goes, this is not a good idea, but your body really wants that sexual relationship, right? So that's a clear indication of the full-bodied yes under circumstances is not the, the thing to follow, right? So, for instance, um, taking not you personally, but taking that kind of consideration as a blueprint, you could say, what's the biggest, f furthest out goal for your life? So let's say you say the biggest, furthest out goal for your life, if you see yourself towards the end of your life, what are the things that are important? Well, probably um, a kind of fulfilling, loving relationship and friends and a kind of a tribe that supports you is probably very high up on the list of what people, what most people want. And then there might also be uh, financial security, you know, having a roof under your house, all of those kind of things and, and enough food to eat. So that's your long-term goal. And so you could say that that's probably where you're most lined up in your long-term goal because your body wants that on a survival level and all the way up to the spiritual level. Your heart wants that immediately and all the way till eternity, which is why it's always till death do us part and forever and ever. They live happily ever after, right? So there's that. And then also mentally you want that because that makes good sense. So your long-term goal or your biggest goal can probably be lined up spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. But then when you get to that goal, you're going to have to make decisions that cut out some aspects of that you know, consideration. So for instance, if um, you have to make a living because you, know, you have to feed yourself, short-term as well as long-term, and you don't feel like getting up in the morning, you might have a full-bodied yes to staying in bed. But if you follow that full-bodied yes, you're going to be without a job and without an income and then without food and you won't be able to sustain your body. Right? And so uh, your full-bodied yes isn't always the best um, decision maker in the short-term because mostly our body wants what is comfortable, uh, what, what is the habit, um, what has been survived before, um, what uh, gives certain payoffs. And one of the, let's say, markers of somebody who is successful, or th that's actually the marker of success, is somebody who can delay gratification. And of course, full-bodied yeses are not a delayed gratification. They're the opposite of that. It's consume now, pay the price later. Have the chips now, deal with having to work out or take low, you know, like high blood pressure medicine later. Well, you know that I'm very, being very black and white here. So while the full body, yes, in things like, let's say, sexual connection is very important, 
right? You don't, but that's an in the moment thing. You want to have sex with somebody if your body isn't going, yes, you shouldn't have sex. It's a necessary but not sufficient cause. That's right. <laughs> Just because it's there doesn't mean you have to do it. That's right. But if it's not there, then probably you should. You shouldn't do it. It's necessary but not sufficient. Yes. So, so that's the, the full-bodied yes or no, right? When it comes to the heart, that's a bit more, um, let's say, nuanced in the sense that uh, you sh probably shouldn't betray your heart. And what I mean by that is you have certain values and guiding principles that make you feel like you're in integrity with your being, you know, your heart, your, your, your soul, like you said, right, and, and your, your bigger picture. So when you consistently tune out the heart, you're essentially selling yourself out. Yeah. But most people don't have their heart into getting up at 5 a.m. and working out and going to, the, you know, going to the office, but they do have the heart in the bigger picture, which is I want to have a certain kind of a life. I want to share that life with people. I'm going to be valuable as a human, um, giving my gifts to other humans, which is one of the biggest actual motivators of the heart, believe it or not. The heart wants to give of itself. The heart wants to be seen giving of itself. So you can typically, if you are somewhat aligned with your big picture, get the heart on board. And then your mind is, of course, the aspect of um, the, you know, the soup of ingredients that has to make some rational decisions, which will go against the body. And there it's an interesting thing if you are looking at long-term success or long-term emotional fulfillment, or if you're looking at brutalizing yourself for the sake of a habit pattern. And that's something that has to be figured out with a lot of nuance. So it's not as simple as if it's not a full-bodied, yes, I'm not going to do it. If that would be the case, I would be spending most of my days not doing what I'm doing because my body probably would want you know, to swim in the ocean and eat a lot and drink a lot and cuddle the dogs a lot. But that's not, that's not all my body wants. You know, my body wants to go somewhere. And my mind is the, is the part that then can say, for instance, we all worked out this morning, right? So we, and, and that's not an easy thing to do during a workshop, as in, you know, your knees hurt and you know, you're not eating the stuff that you should be eating and all of that. But the mind goes, get up, go down there. You're going to feel a lot better after. And then in an ideal world, you know, the body goes, fuck, no, I don't want to go down there. This is horrible. My body, at least, not Steve's. His body's always like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> But then, but then at the end of the workout, you can go consciously. This is how you bring them back into alignment. You can go, how does my body feel? Oh, wow, my body feels really awake, really alive, really good. See body, we delayed gratification, but now look at that. It's really good. Now it's a full-bodied yes. And then those full-bodied yeses that you mark after the fact allow your body to be more of a yes, even if it's something that you don't necessarily want to engage with in the moment. And that's how you can play with alignment. But I think it's, um, it's 
not a good idea to believe that you can always get everything into alignment. But you, what we, you do want to do and what is one of the main aims of this workshop is that you at least know when you're off and that you can at least feel what's happening and you have some tools to work with that in the body. So that's, I'm going to shut up, but the thing that I wanted you to say was the Board of Advisors. Mm. Yeah. Talk about uh, bringing the body to the Board of Advisors, right? And um, it means you're informed by your body's, um, sorry, signals. And uh, what can happen is that sometimes if you have not been in touch with your body, not you a person, if one is not in touch with one's body, then uh, it, you start to become, get a bit more embodiment going, start to bring the body to the board of advisors, you start to listen to what the body's saying. If you could imagine a board of advisors like King Arthur's Round Table, you have different aspects of yourself as we've been discussing, right? Cultural conditioning, you know, whatever, your mind, your heart, okay, family patterns, right? Education, etc., etc. Um, you can bring your body to that. But then what can sometimes happen is the body leaps into the center and uh, it's a bit of an overcompensation. It can become a, somewhat of a dictatorship of the body. A dictatorship because the body's been kind of ignored for such a long time suddenly it leaps into the middle now it's got a voice it takes over and you have a dictatorship of the body and that's when people you know i can't proceed without my green juice that sort of thing you know it's actually really useful to be able to override the body uh, it's very important to be able to do that for example as uh, michaela said um, if you want to it's time to get up in the morning to do your job or whatever is the case or to do whatever it might be you don't feel like it, well, you have to override the body. body says, don't want to get up, but you override it because you have a higher value than the passing impulse of the body. Or you have a, you know, you're nursing a sick person, for example, in your home, and you need to get up or stay up, and it's very difficult, the body wants to sleep, but you keep going um, because it's a higher value than the impulse, the impulsive, if you want satisfaction of the body or craving of the body maybe another way of putting it and uh, so it's important to be able to do that however some people are so good at that overriding the body they're so good at that that they can just ride that horse and then you're just riding 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 they can't feel it they're so good at overriding it amazing willpower right and then the thing what happens collapses out from under them they think what happened burnout something like that burnout right what happened my body just collapsed out from under me what's wrong wake up but it's been overridden for so long so it's important to be able to feel the body but you don't always have to be dictated to by the body and of course you're right though that there is this idea of full-bodied yes and so on but people do not always speak good sense <laughs> just because someone speaks confidently about something does not mean they're right <laughs> certainty is very seductive Certainty is very seductive. Sometimes you listen to someone who's speaking very certainly, and you think, gosh, if I was that certain, I would have to be sure I was, knew what I was talking about. But sometimes it's the case that their standard of truth is just lower than yours. And there's a great book by Eric Hoffer called True Believer, in which he uh, analyzes the uh, mechanisms of uh, various different kinds of cults, cults, right? Like Jonestown, right? He also looks at different political extremist political groups that are considered cults, right? And uh, it was written in the 70s, I think. He was a psychiatrist in that time. And they were quite interested in that at that time because they'd had a lot of high-profile cults like the Jonestown 
people, right, who all killed themselves, right, um, in South America. And uh, he said that the efficacy of a doctrine is not in its accuracy, but in its certitude, I think he said, certitude. In other words, if you can state it and believe it with a great deal of certainty and gusto, that's appealing. It doesn't have to work. It doesn't have to be accurate, really, to reality. That's secondary to the payoff of certainty. That's how come people end up believing very strange things that don't make a lot of sense. What's the payoff? It's not accuracy. It's not a better understanding of things that they're getting. It's certitude, an end of the inquiry, the comfort of certainty. And so sometimes certain people, uh, intentionally or unintentionally, are drawn to that. We all, I think, are drawn to that to an extent. Uh, but certain people, when they're teaching, teach as meaning merchants. Their main job is, is actually to just give you a cookie of certainty. For, you know what your problem is, Shing? You need to learn how to have a full-bodied yes. Wow, that seems simple and direct, and I can learn that. Yeah, would, would that really do it? Yes. I myself often have full-bodied yeses. In fact, I'm guided only by that. And since I've started doing, living that way, my life is fantastic. You know, that's, it's like, that's it. And so, so sometimes people teach in that way. So it's, some people teach aspirationally. Some people teach ideologically. Aspirationally, is, this is how I'd like things to be. People do. They teach things that they'd like to be the case. They teach, wouldn't it be nice if this was the case? I'm going to just teach that. As if it's true, and then we can all believe it. Full body, we're all getting, coming divorced a full-bodied yes together. Isn't it great? And everyone's like, yeah, it's fantastic. And then the breaks, and so how's your full-bodied yes going? I think it's getting better. I can feel it coming on. It's coming, you know. Everything's going to be better with this full-bodied yes, uh, just like the teacher says. So that's aspirational, you know. I'd like it to be this way. And it'd be great, you know. The problem is this, and the solution is that. Or sometimes people teach ideologically. This is how things should be. This is how things should be. So some people teach aspirationally. This is how I'd like things to be. Some people teach ideologically. This is how things should be. But uh, both of them are not optimal, I would say, because life is not so simple. Life is not so simple. So when we're, what we try to promote or do here is an inquiry-based approach, inquiry over imposition, rather than imposing upon you what you should do and how you should think and that sort of thing. Instead, try to, we try to facilitate inquiry, investigation. Fundamentally, it's an attempt to create a space for you to investigate your own life, investigate your own bodily experience, for example, or your heart or whatever the theme may be. That's why we, do, we talk to each other in these small groups about your life, right? We're not telling you what your highest value should be, but you maybe find out through these talk processes, for example. And it's true that when these sorts of decisions are tricky because of several factors. One of them is the temporal dimension, as Michaela pointed out, time. What's good now may not be good tomorrow. And what's uncomfortable now may be good tomorrow. That's a big problem. You know, which full-bodied yes do you obey? Tonight's or tomorrow morning's? <laughs> which full-bodied yes? You know, in other words, you keep going tonight, and then tomorrow it's a full-body what the fuck. <laughs> it's a full body never again until the next full body yes comes along and hijacks right so um, that's the temporal dimension right what, ac what about across time and that's not easy it's not always to say that uh, delayed gratification um, is always the way to go how delayed 
You know, how much do you kick the can down the road before you enjoy life a little bit? So it's not so simple as to say, well, simply do whatever is best for later and never what is best now. Well, that's not quite right either. That's another extreme. Some people are very impulsive. Whatever they do, they do it now. Other people are very extreme in the other direction, always kicking the can down the road. These are two extremes. We have to be somewhere in the middle, right? It's a big middle, but we, can, we have to understand that sometimes you do something now, enjoy it. Other times you have to wait, you delay, right? Um, and then uh, another, another conflict, as Michaela, I think, was pointing to, another way of saying it is um, your values, your hierarchy of values. There are different, we have different values, and sometimes they conflict. For example, uh, sensual enjoyment versus uh, medical independence, <laughs> as an example. You know. What I mean is that sometimes you have different kinds of values, right? Uh, you like to enjoy sensual indulgence, but on the other hand, you wish to be medically independent for in later life. If you indulge too much now, oh, yes, later on, you might be dependent on... Uh, you know, me- medical systems. I mean, I'm just I'm just coming up with an example. Or um, you enjoy socializing, but on the other hand, you really want to have a sharp mind the next day for the work you're doing or the learning you're engaging in. So now what? Well, socializing and being with people is important, but you also have to work tomorrow. So how do you balance those two values? You've got to go to bed at some point, but there's still a party happening, right? So you can continue with the party, and then you're dull the next day. Maybe you don't learn as well if you're learning, or you don't perform as well if you're working. Maybe that has consequences in various different ways. Light consequences, you don't do as well in the exam. More serious consequences, you know, the heart surgery. You know, you zone out, whatever, and, you know, th- th- there's all different things. So it's a, it's a series of trade-offs between not only the temporal scale of time, but also the horizontal scale, we could say, of values. How do you navigate that? Well, that's, you know, that, well, you simply, Shing, I'll tell you the answer now. You simply <laughs> need to learn to have a full-bodied yes. Isn't that, oh, great, isn't that nice? We can simplify all that to one, one cooking. But it's meaning merchantry, unfortunately. But of course, it's a good thing to tell somebody on a certain level, um, in a low-resolution way, uh, who's disembodied. You need to listen to your body more. But, you know, you need to listen to your body more but not all the time, and not, and not in every situation. See, that's not quite as satisfying, <laughs> you know? Uh, so there's a lot of that sort of meaning merchantry that uh, goes on. When we open ourselves to another human, physically and beyond that, emotionally, spiritually, however, however you want to say that, because all of that happens. Right, good sex in its very definition is the moment where somebody says, "Oh God," right, and that "Oh God" in whatever, however they say, it, they might not say "Oh God," but that that openness is the openness that it goes from you all the way to the divine. And it, I sometimes imagine it like you know those uh, barbecue skewers where people put like a piece of onion, a piece of meat, a piece of corn, a piece of mushroom. 
It's a little bit like that. It's like the, it's the God is the skewer, right? And then there's you, and there's the other person, and then there's um, you know there's a bit of love, and then there's a bit of lust, and then there's a bit of parental imprints, and then there's the mushroom of uh, I don't know the earth you're laying on or something like that. It's like this it's this skewer of things that kind of cook together and. Uh, as, as it would be on a skewer of s certain things, there's an intermingling of the, f the forces of the vegetables, right? And so that, I think, is what happens for us always, is that there's an opening, and in that opening, imprints can happen easier. And so, of course, the bigger your opening, the stronger the imprints. Meaning, if you have like casual, ca casual sports sex, right? Meaning, you know, you're young and that's what everybody does and you just have sex for the enjoyment of sex and there's not much on it, you probably have way less imprints than when this was the love of your life in the most uh, expanded moment of your entire relationship that also included sex and maybe even um, included conception. You know, people talk about these things and it's this massive imprint and it takes on the shape in the person psychologically as well as psychically as well as physically and then that person leaves and then what right there's like this gigantic footprint on your heart uh, where you know where you just now feel the loss of that and that's very rough it's one of the reasons why a lot of people typically find someone else straight away or even before Right, and this is certainly true with, uh, you know, w with people I have worked with, where they essentially make themselves fall in love or turn their body towards or in lust with somebody else because it it reshapes the imprint and it makes it easier to to leave. As a matter of fact, there's a certain kind of person that's the only way they can leave. You know? And then, of course, that shapes it, and then they have to replace that, and they have to replace that. And then if at one moment, God forbid, they don't have anybody to replace that with, it's this heinous moment in time where you, you are so void of that imprint, or of the fulfilling of that imprint, that it causes a real crisis. So here are some strategies to work with that, right? So the first strategy, of course, um, is keeping the body processing, which we do in nonlinear movement, but there's other ways to do that. Um, but it's, it's one of the main um, aspects of good, let's say, imprint hygiene, is that you don't let things get stuck, both positive and negative, interestingly enough. Meaning, um, even if the imprint, if the person is available and the imprint is amazing, there has to be some kind of understanding that you can't orient your entire being all the way to one person. That's just good sense. Right? doesn't mean that you can't have the, your heart open and be oriented towards them, but there has to be checks and balances once again, as we've just talked. And then you're constantly turning that over so you make sure, and this is, the, this is what I think you mean with karmic imprints, so you make sure those behaviors and imprints and ideas don't solidify. 
That's the important piece, right? Because everything that you're constantly working with becomes this pattern, and once that pattern is there, then other patterns of a similar nature attach to it. And as you all, correct. Yeah, because that's what the body does. The body says, oh, here's a well-trodden path. Oh, these are related paths. We're going to move them towards that so that the energy flows easier and we don't have to spend so much energy on that path. So, and then, of course, if you have an injury, typically where you have an injury and there is already some attention, other things attach as well. So you can have these injurious patterns that you pile on top and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So good, constant hygiene, so to speak, moving your body, going for walks, taking care of your body, doing nonlinear movement, doing release, um, that's an absolute must. But then beyond that, the thing that you heard me talk about is um, it's a very specific process where you use your body to orient towards something bigger than that person. And um, the short version of that would be to do the kind of practice or the kind of activity that you do when you mourn the imprint and expand it. So I'll give you an example. So most people, when um, they are very imprinted by a partner, they're imprinted by that partner so much more than other partners because it was deeper or you were more open, however you want to say that. So your deepest imprint is typically the imprint that you mourn. And um, I just got an application somewhere where somebody was, no, it was not an application, it was a podcast question, where somebody was said, uh, saying, I still mourn the first guy I've ever been with. I've been married for 25 years, but every day I cry about the loss of that person. Mm-hmm. Right? That's fairly extreme, uh, but that was clearly such a deep imprint. So what you do then is you find an activity where you orient towards that imprint. So for a lot of people, that's actually masturbation. Not only, but that's where a lot of people put that, right? They, they have this orientation towards that person, and they still have that sexual openness towards that person. So when they engage in self-pleasure, they still think about that. And then that can in itself become a very um, noxious uh, exploration because you have the moment of the loss, and then, but you can't actually have the pleasure without thinking about it. So you're kind of oddly patterning yourself, you know, towards loss and pleasure, loss and pleasure. So that you can make this worse every which way, so to speak, right? So the way out of that is that when you do the activity, you open beyond that pattern and what that in masturbation means, this is what you heard me talk about, is that you discipline yourself to essentially not fantasize about that partner, present or past, but you fantasize about God, so to speak, meaning you, you open your heart beyond that person and you feel yourself being filled by the divine or filled by the universe. A lot of people have a much easier time doing that with nature. Nature being an expression of the divine, of course, where you essentially, when you start having that fantasy, kind of 
turn your attention away from that towards being filled by everything or towards opening yourself sexually to everything. And you have to practice that the same way you would practice any other skill. So you can wean yourself off the, you know, the, the contractive, somewhat addictive fantasy of that imprint. No. So that's the quick and dirty answer. The very detailed aspects of that we deal with in the women's groups, like in the study groups over years, where you learn all the practices that allow you to do that, not only for the imprint, but for everything else that you want to work with in your life. It requires just a certain kind of permeability and openness of the body. So um, it's, it's just a matter of having ongoing practice in, in a few domains. Yeah, I mean, I would say that most definitely what can happen is that, um, and this is once again where we come to how do we feel about relationships from our upbringing, right? So you can pretty much assume that most of what you choose for yourself in your life, including the work you do, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, comes from previous imprints or previous patterns. And so if, the, if your parental patterns your first relationship patterns, the deepest relationship pattern, if they all line up, that can be all pervasive, mm -hmm. for sure. And we know that from people who are in abusive relationships, for instance, right? where it's so hard, where anybody on the outside goes, are you mad? What are you doing? But it's such a deep imprint on so many levels for so much time that it's pretty much impossible to get out without help. Um, because of the way our brains are built and how they work, we filter out probably, I don't know what they say nowadays, but 95% of what's available is filtered out. So what other pe some people call extrasensory uh, awareness and you know all of those things are things that are available to anyone at any time, uh, but we filter them out because there's only so much the brain can process. And the same is true, for instance, with uh, sunlight, right? We don't see polarized sunlight because we don't need it. But bees see polarized sunlight so that they can navigate. Um, so it's there. It's not, it's not some kind of esoteric principle. You know, when, you, when a bee finds their way to the hive, they do it by being able to see the sunlight in a certain way that allows them to, you know, navigate. So we have technically that ability, but we don't need it for anything. So we don't, it's not available. Right? And that's true for pretty much anything. So what lands on your doorstep is what your brain is willing to see. Right? or what your brain knows and is aware of. There might be something right next to that on the doorstep that you just don't see. It's um, like some people are always convinced nobody likes me. And then, you know, they see that. It's like having a certain kind of sunglasses on, you see a certain color. Every time someone leaves the room, for example, like that, I think, oh, she's leaving the room because she doesn't like me or I'm boring or something like that. The way you, your presuppositions about uh, yourself and others and so on, of course, affects what you perceive. And you can't really relate to what you can't perceive. That's the sort of thing you're trying to talk about, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Do you know the story of the Garden of Eden? From the Bible, basically speaking, yeah. In that story, uh, Adam and Eve are in the garden, right? Anyway, 
long story short, they eat from the they eat from the they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And then um, they they have to leave Eden. They're evicted from Eden, right? Check out by 11 a.m. And they have to work. You know, there's various sort of consequences that happen to them. But one of them is that they can't just sort of walk around, you know, naked, eating stuff and so on. They have to work for their food and all this sort of thing. They have to work. And so um, sometimes when you uh, encounter experiences uh, like uh, you get your heart broken or you perhaps meet someone who's not very nice or you have a bad situation experience, um, you, it's like eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now you know there are people out there like that, or there are experiences out there like that. And so you can't walk around in Eden anymore, ready to fall in love and so on. You have this um, uh, lesson. And so some people, especially if it's quite traumatic, say people are leaving traumatic relationships, right, abusive relationships, for example, they have this very much. Well, you've got three choices. You can say, well, that's the only person that is like that. And then... That's one way. Or you can say everyone's like that. All people are like that. Or you have to, if you take the middle path, which is that anyone I meet could be like that, but might not be like that. That's a much more difficult thing to integrate. Because you have to figure out, how am I going to assess, especially given that I walked into it last time, right? How am I going to assess uh, other people I meet? Are they like that or not? And that's... uh, one has to, in other words, integrate the uh, experience so that you're aware that anyone you meet could theoretically be like that. But how many are like that? And what are the signs? And what are the tendencies in you? What's your pattern that intersects with that, etc.? So one has to become educated, in other words, having eaten from the no- tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You've encountered some evil. Now you have to become educated about, about it. You're not in Eden anymore. Um, but some people, it's too painful to do that. So we just say, okay, never again. It's not going to open that much again. I'm just not going to go that deep again. I'm just not. And a lot of people do it like that. Or they go so far and then they abort the uh, situation, right? So it's not easy, is the point, to walk that middle uh, road between the extremes of naivety and cynicism, if you want. It's not easy to do that. It requires a lot of wakefulness, actually. The extremes don't take any wakefulness. You just plug and play fall into any extreme, just plug and play. But if you want to be in the gray area of the middle way, you have to be awake. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one aspect of it. Yes. Perhaps that's all. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is one aspect. And in that aspect, there is such things as um, gaining distinction Right, meaning making better distinctions as to red flags. Right, um, I hear now there's beige flags. Beige Have you flags. heard about beige flags? Yes. Oh yeah, there's a whole new you know like vernacular around dating now. It's a, a beige flag is somebody's just really boring. <laughs> like, yes. So, so uh, beige says it all. But so anyway, you learn good distinctions. Right, you learn what is a red flag. In general, a red flag for you. Um, you learn uh, which behaviors are acceptable and which are not acceptable. So that's in the realm of distinction. 
So that's the first thing, and that you can learn. There's good books about it. There's lots of good uh, material about it that's not too controversial in one way or another. Good distinctions. It's like wine tasting or something, right? The more, the more you know, the better you can distinguish fine you know, layers of taste. The other aspect of that is skill development. And in the skill development uh, area, you have things like knowing how to set a boundary, knowing to ask for uh, your needs to be met in an appropriate way. So neither by being a martyr nor by throwing a temper tantrum every time something goes slightly wrong or nagging or things like that. Like so proper articulation of needs combined with proper boundaries, combined with basic human um, communication skills, right? So that's, that would be in the skill domain. So once you have that particular set of tools on your tool belt, you can deal with the other thing, which is what you're talking about. How, how am I going to wrench my heart back open after it's been shattered in a million pieces, glued together, and now, you know, what am I going to do? And um, there's a very inconvenient answer to that. Your heart will break anyway, over and over and over. And that's just the way it goes in human experience because even in the most perfect love, um, there's the loss already built in. Everything, you, everyone you know will die. Everything you know will change. And everything that you've loved will be lost. Which is a really shit thing to consider. But it's also just the way it is, and there's a certain kind of openness and freedom in that and because it allows you to love more fully and more completely in the moment because it will go, right? It just will go. Um, you know, there's no way around that. We have a certain idea that certain things shouldn't happen, like children shouldn't die before their parents, and you know things. But that's also not true, as we all know. Right? The things that we love very deeply can be lost, and people we love very deeply can be lost through death or divorce or you know whatever breakups. So the heart is there to be broken in a certain way, but that's what also makes the heart love fully. It's that day and night, you know, contrast thing. And that's inevitable. It's inevitable. So when you know it's inevitable, you're not going to fight that, but you will need a good tool chest so that you don't willy-nilly break your heart, right? That's, that, that would be silly to go, oh, yeah, I love fully again. Oh, oh, there's another guy who's doing exactly like the last guy, but oh, no, I believe in love, you know, and then ouch, ouch, ouch. So there's, there's layers of that, but that's the thing. And one of the things that I always really, really loved, um, this exists both in kind of Catholic icons, but also in Hindu icons, that depiction of the open heart, with Hanuman with the open chest, with the heart beating, or um, sometimes you see there's a very specific Mother Mary statue with the open heart, with the thorns around it. And of course, there's Jesus with the open heart. Right? That, that is the depiction of the very thing we're talking about. Everything you love will be lost, and you're going to 
love anyway and the the thorns of of the knowledge of that loss make the love even more precious and sweeter and that's that's a whole other consideration when you see these depictions paintings or sometimes you see photos of saints right people who are considered saints they don't just go <laughs> you know they have this they, they have this beatific but incredibly pained expression on their face that is the expression of that open heart that also knows the loss. And I think that's where we can all aspire to be a bit more saintly in that domain. And the last thing I want to say about that is one of the ways to mend a broken heart or deal with that, that contraction and opening is the activity of offering. Right, so the, the, the gift given has a much stronger expansion of the heart than the gift received. Because the gift received comes with obligation. It also comes with not being able to, to accept it fully because of other imprints and stuff like that. But the gift given is, is uh, given freely and fully in the context of the heart. And so um, often giving the very thing that you want not in a martyr way, right, but in, in, in the saintly way, uh, does a lot to mend those holes and 